welcome to the Allegory Story Podcast. My name is Melanie Nevis. And I'm Tegan Aline. And uh, we've been talking about witches and witchcraft. We've been talking about uh, our own personal experiences with it and how the rise in witchcraft has been linked very closely to feminism. But you can't really talk about witches without talking about goddess witches. Mm, what do you yeah, think? Because Tegan? they seem well. I think it, it. Yeah, I think you can, and I think you can't. So it's very, very interesting, as I like to say. <laughs> and I'm very <laughs> excited for what we're gonna do in these next couple of episodes because we're gonna dive really deep into the histories and the stories behind the goddesses of the witches. So. Like we said in one of the last episodes, um, you can still be a witch and practice witchcraft without having a deity, but very often witches do have deities. Um, so we're going to explore those in, in the next couple of episodes, and that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Tegan said, there really is no set rule regarding deity worship and witchcraft. Anyone that worships one deity, multiple deities, or no deities is completely valid. It's all based on personal choice and experience, and sometimes you choose a deity, sometimes they choose you. Many witches kind of believe that the true nature of a deity is completely unknowable and transcends all names and forms, Hmm. and maybe beyond the grasp of mortals. And witches generally hold that goddesses and gods are symbols for types of energy that are found in existence. And the perception of the energies as being real comes from the energies themselves. Mm -hmm. And they kind of make understandable to the human mind by taking the appearance, the appearance of a goddess or God, Mm -hmm. right? Our minds just can't really grasp these big ideas as we know. Um, So when we're talking about goddess witches, you know, we need to talk about Hecate. And it's Hecate or Hecate. I've heard it both ways, depending on where people are from. It's sometimes spelled with a C, sometimes spelled with a K. Uh, K is from the Greek transliteration and the C is from the Roman transliteration. Um, So, you know, as we will discover, they are so interlinked and so interlocked at this point. Mm-hmm, definitely. So who is Hecate? And I kind of toggle between both. Hecate, Hecate. I don't know. Um, I, I say both depending on, I don't know. It just comes out of my mouth. However, it comes kind of like Caribbean and Caribbean, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whatever comes out, comes <laughs> out. <laughs> so Hecate is the goddess of magic and witchcraft and so much more. She is incredibly complex and is continuously evolving and has really found a resurgence in the last few years. Like she's very, mm-hmm. very well known now and is the goddess of witches. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because in the first episode, we kind of talked about um, women and the way that we have reclaimed the idea of the witch, and that is in part to media. But I also think part of the reason why, like I feel like Hecate is kind of connected to that in the way, because she is kind of viewed as like a, a, a deity of dark, 
but people are embracing their dark in their exploration, um, especially related to deity worship. So I feel like there's some kind of connection there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There is. So who is Hecate? Uh, who is that? She's a goddess. (laughs) She's a goddess within Greek mythology, but her origins are very, very mysterious and murky. Uh, Some scholars argue that she was probably just absorbed into Greek and Roman culture by well-traveled citizens or brought to them from immigrants from neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. Others argue that Hecate wasn't originally an Olympian god. She just belonged to a popular folk religion. And we talked a little bit about those folk witchcraft, but folk religions existed as well. Very, very common. Yeah, very common. Uh, Today, she's commonly known as the three-formed goddess, which in contemporary neo-pagan belief is referred to as maiden mother crone. But if you take a look at the definition provided by the Oxford Classical Dictionary, uh, it reports that Hecate is outlandish in her infernal aspects. She is more at home on the fringes than in the center of the Greek polytheism. Intrinsically ambivalent and polymorphous, she straddles the conventional boundaries and eludes definition. And her name itself has been argued to have many meanings, uh, with the two most popular definitions being worker from afar and she who works her will. That's so interesting. I know. That definition is really like the epitome of the witch, huh? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I think we're going to see this a lot in, um, as we dive into these goddesses and these deities. A lot is absorbed from the f- quote-unquote foreign, you know, which mm-hmm. I think it's worth saying that foreign is basically considered anything outside of the Mediterranean and any- anything outside of Roman rule at the in that particular era of when these deities kind of originally came into being at the the forefront. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, so Hecate is this ancient goddess, but she's changed so much and continues to change. She continues to evolve. And I, I personally kind of wonder whether it might be more accurate to say that she is a modern goddess with ancient roots rather than calling her an ancient goddess, because, you know, in her earliest form, Hecate was worshipped as this goddess of abundance and bestowed generous gifts upon those who honored her. And she was this guardian against evil spirits and a guide through difficult transitions, especially around childbirth and motherhood. And that's just not exactly what she's known for anymore. So In ancient Greek myth, the goddess of witchcraft kind of stood between life and death at the entrance of the underworld, and very early representations on Greek vases show a single figure, not this three-headed figure, but a single figure in long robes holding flaming torches. And after about 430 BCE, Roman statues begin to depict her in a triple form with three bodies back to back, keeping watch in all directions at crossroads. And then after about 500 BCE, that's when things, yeah, after about 500 BCE, things really started to change for Hecate and her darker qualities kind of come into the limelight and receive a bunch of attention. 
All of a sudden, you only ever see her Gee. triple form. Gee, I wonder what was going. <laughs> I wonder what was going on around 500 BC. Hmm. All of a sudden, <laughs> you only ever see her in a triple form, and she's this fearsome figure who is seen roaming the world in darkness with spirits and dogs following her, and she becomes linked to black magic and is asked to fulfill curses, and is associated with these with madness and with repulsive crones. Mm. Now, knowing that around this time. There were a lot of misogynistic stories in and around Greece. It's also the time that the male solar gods rose to power. Mm. And this may have been a strategy to discredit her and undervalue her female identified powers. But it's also kind of what shaped her into the goddess that she represents today, which is the goddess of magic, witchcraft, the night, the moon, ghosts, and necromancy. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Actually, wow, I say that way too much, but <laughs> the level, the level, to, it's, it's, it is interesting. Sorry, my, my dog is getting up. Now that it, the moment I start recording this podcast, she's always up in my grill, but it's, it is, <laughs> as I said before, interesting because we talk a lot about, well, we when people who are interested in folklore and history and religious history, when we talk a lot about these things, we talk a lot about the way that the Catholic church liked to oppress women and the various tactics that they had. But this almost, this is a speculation of course, but this almost feels like here we're seeing it um, from the perspective of the Greeks and the Romans also trying to find, also finding ways to repress the female deities as well. You know, I think it's safe to say that That's women have been oppressed for a really long time, for thousands of years, <laughs> right? There used to yeah. be matriarchals, and there still are some matriarchal societies that exist now. They're few mm -hmm. and far between, rare but they do exist. Rare, yeah. uh, but the the female goddess was worshipped, but that was, you know, 5,000 years ago. You have to go visit megalithic ruins to really see when the, the goddess was the one that was worshipped primarily. Mm -hmm. We're but we're not talking about that. That's another. <laughs> we're talking that's, about. We'll talk about that in another episode in another season because. Um, yeah, yeah, because it it is really fascinating in its own right. Um, but we're talking about another period where you know, yes, fast forward uh, a bit. Women, <laughs> fast forward a little bit. Women were still. Um, still kind of put down and uh yeah so hecate <laughs> hecate is a goddess capable of both good and evil and in her triple form she is a guardian of the crossroads now the greeks believed that souls who were lost or souls who died prematurely would gather at the crossroads and they would fall under hecate's domain and she's a protector of all in-between spaces, all liminal spaces. Liminal and her space, triple form yeah. would have been everywhere. So you would have seen it in city walls and borders and doorways. And there's actually, because of this, there, there are these pillars called hecateons that were erected at crossroads hmm. and at city gates. One was actually at a crossroads right by the Acropolis. And they were thought to have the power to ward off evil. 
And at first, like I had mentioned, she was just a singular pillar. And then later you see that there's a triple form pillar happening with these Hecateons, um, kind of seeing out in all directions. Hmm. And she's often accompanied by dogs. Um, dogs are very, very closely linked with Hecate. And in ancient Rome, it was actually thought that dogs could see ghosts. So a dog that would basically be barking at nothing was thought to be warning of the approach of Hecate and her spirits. Um, I feel like my dog's <laughs> panting is going to add a nice effect into the background. of the- <laughs> It's like, maybe that's why she doesn't want to leave me right- alone right now. She's like, hey, Hecate. <laughs> but that's really cool. And at, at, these, at these crossroads where the pillars were, ritual offerings of food were left for the goddesses on the last lunar night um, or lunar month of, at the crossroads in the hope of appeasing Hecate and any restless dead who would accompany her. And some accounts sadly record that dogs were also sacrificed to her yeah, because she just seem like it makes what? sense but I was gonna say that doesn't seem like it makes sense but I but yeah I get I get it okay <laughs> some accounts report that I mean it happened so long ago we don't yeah. know but I also wouldn't put it past ancient people mm-hmm. right yeah like she absolutely exactly. loved dogs so I wouldn't put it past them um so Hecate is an in-betweener and plays the role in the liminal space between life and death yeah and in many depictions, is shown with keys that would be used to unlock the the gates that divided the two realms, and she could move between the living and the dead freely. And, like, to control the destiny of others is a really powerful role. We also find Hecate is invoked by sorceresses for help in magic and spells, and her name would often be found on cursed tablets. So... I found an example of one of these tablets, and it says, I further bind you, Actifi, throughout the earth, by names of triple-formed Hecate, the tremor-bearing, scourge-bearing, torch-carrying, golden-slippered, blood-sucking, nether-worldly, and horse-riding one. Where, this curse tablet, where is it from, and what time period? Do you know? Uh, it would have been around, yeah, it would have been around, like, 500-ish BC. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So she's considered to be an all-powerful Greek goddess. At one point, her worshippers believed that she ruled over heaven, earth, and the seas. And sadly, while this is all true, Hecate is never a major deity when compared to the 12 Olympians. And there are actually very few myths that revolve around her. Like, none of them do, actually. She's, you know, a supporting role, but she's never in the spotlight. So her origins are really unclear. Some say Hecate was a daughter of Perseus and Asteria, both of whom were from the second generation of Titans. And in Greek mythology, the Titans were the first rulers of Earth who, or who the Olympians actually overthrew with Hecate's assistance. Right. Others I guess you, claim you need her help for that. Yeah. Others claim that she is the daughter of Zeus and either Hera or Feria. I don't know. Zeus got around. We don't know. <laughs> Zeus did uh, get around. And I feel like also that, that that just that phrase, we all know it to be true. Zeus got around. That's telling. That is telling. What do we know about <laughs> men today? What do we know about men back then? That is a telling thing 
about the culture and the society and the ideas in it at the time related to women. Yeah, there, I could go on a whole tangent because there are <laughs> women who also get around uh, historically and in, in fairy tales and, and lore and stuff, but they are often kind of shunned and viewed negatively and the men are viewed like James Bond and it, it, it is unfair. So I, get, oh, I grant you sure. that. For sure. I think there are there are definitely plenty of cases of, of women also getting around. But yeah, the way that their stories shift through time mm-hmm. it is different. Only now it's are we different. seeing like modern day folklorists retelling stories of Zeus and being like, Zeus was a perv, you know, like nobody said <laughs> Zeus was a perv up until recently. So, <laughs> but everybody said women were whatever they were. Um, yeah much before that yeah (laughs) yeah um in any case it is widely accepted Hecate is not an original member of the Greek pantheon Mm -hmm. Uh, her cult is said to have originated either in ancient Thrace which is an area of modern day Greece Bulgaria Turkey or perhaps Caria Anatolia which is the Asian part of Turkey um, but un- unfortunately, like I said, there really aren't that many myths about Hecate where she exists. She's just generally a supporting character. Mm. She's first mentioned in Hesiod's Theogony. And Theogony is a poem written by Hesiod. So it was written between the 8th to 7th century BCE. And it describes the origins and genealogies of Greek gods. Since there's so little mention of her before Theogony, some academics actually argue that Hesiod was probably from a town where Hecate had a substantial following and that his writing was actually helped promote her cult. Interesting. Um, Yeah. But the myth that she is best known for or like the myth that she's best known through is in the abduction of Persephone. Have you heard of this before? I feel like the story of Persephone, Demeter, and Haiti is kind of like very, very famous for anybody who's very interested in in um, in like esoteric mythology and lore. I feel like this story has had a big uptick lately like the amount of of fan fiction out of out in the world for persephone and haiti is like wild (laughs) i don't know if you've seen any of just just type them in type them in on uh pinterest (laughs) i love that you'll be like what Um, (laughs) yeah i mean here's the thing so it it is it is an interesting kind of story so it is uh, persephone is Initially known as Kor, and Kor means the innocent one or the maiden. And there's always different versions of the story. Some details differ, but the, the general story is that Hades is Zeus's brother and god of the underworld, and he's right. feeling very lonely in his kingdom. He's he was looking boy. around, bored as he was, kind of like, you know, just checking out what's happening above ground. And he spots Kor. <laughs> he spots innocence and he's, and he's like, damn, that's hot. <laughs> he's just so captivated by her beauty and he decides to speak with Zeus. So he doesn't even try and speak with Kor. He just goes straight for Zeus. And uh, Kor is Zeus's daughter, mind you. So that's just an interesting tidbit. Oh, I didn't realize daughter. that actually. Okay. 
Yeah. So wait a minute. Does does that mean that Zeus was with Demeter again? He got around. <laughs> like, why was he even married? It makes no sense. Anyways, okay. Because that would mean that Demeter was like had had relations with. Yeah, Zeus. but yeah, huh? and and there's a bunch of stuff with Demeter and Hera, and yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. They don't like each other. <laughs> Hera doesn't like anybody. Anyways, I don't blame we should her. Do an episode just about her. I had be bitter too, man. <laughs> like, why are they married? Like, just if you're gonna sleep with all your goddesses, just don't be married. Anyways, I digress. I'm listening. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's okay. So uh, he speaks to Zeus about taking Kor as his wife, and Zeus agrees. Uh Hades creates this flower to lure Kor to him. So while she's out just picking flowers, and she goes to pick Hades' flower, Hades, a big hole opens up, and Hades emerges, emerges from the earth with his chariot and steals her away to his underground kingdom, and she's screaming when this is happening because obvious reasons, right? Like she didn't know. <laughs> she's being taken. She doesn't know what the hell is going on. And she's some guy just grabbed her in a chariot and is pulling her underground. So she's screaming her head off. Okay. Now, unbeknownst to Hades, or perhaps he just didn't think about it, Hecate had heard Kor's screams and Helios, the sun god who sees everything while his light is shining, also saw the abduction. Mm. Now, Kor's mother, Demeter, realizes that her daughter is missing and begins searching everywhere for her. Mm. And after about 10 days of searching, Hecate approaches Demeter to tell her what she heard and tells her to speak with Helios. Helios tells them what he saw and told them that Zeus had sanctioned it. Now, Demeter is incredibly distraught and in her grief, leaves Olympus and transforms herself into an old woman. Now, being the goddess of agriculture, Demeter protests the abduction by stopping her work, and suddenly the world is starving. Food is incredibly scarce. Um, Crops keep failing. Gods everywhere realizes that this is a major problem. Yeah. (laughs) So Zeus sends messages to Demeter to try and get her to begin growing crops again, but she completely refuses to comply unless she gets her daughter back. Now, in the underworld, Kor comes to see that Hades actually isn't as scary as she first thought. He had been so lonely, and he told her of his longing to keep her there with him. And although she missed her mother and the world above ground, she also had this new status as queen of the underworld. And that status began to grow as did her love for Hades, and she believed that she had really important work to do underground. Mm. But the world continues starving. So Zeus sends Hermes and Hecate to Hades to help in the search and help guide Kor back. And Kor emerges from the underworld with Hecate guiding her uh, with torches in hand, which we often see in depictions of Hecate. And she emerges with her innocence lost. Kor emerges as Persephone, and Persephone means bringer of destruction or death. Mm. So she returns to Earth as queen of the underworld, and Demeter is completely overjoyed with Persephone's return and goes back to Olympus, but realized that Persephone had eaten in the underworld. And it's common in cultures 
all over the world that you should not eat anything from a world that isn't your own. So don't eat anything from the land of the fairies. Certainly don't eat anything from the underworld. If you do, you become bound to that world. And Mm -hmm. Persephone had eaten, in some stories, it's six pomegranate seeds. In some, it's three. Mm -hmm. Let's say six. Who can stop at just six, though? Like, pomegranates. If you're going (laughs) to eat a pomegranate, I'll eat the whole thing. Anyway. (laughs) It was one of those things that Hate offered to her before she left the underworld. And she knew. She knew that it would bind her to the place because she had held off from eating that entire time. Mm -hmm. So she knew that – she knew what she was doing. So she she eats six pomegranate seeds. And with that, a bargain is struck. Persephone has to spend half of the year in the underworld during which time her mother grieves. And that brings us the fall and winter seasons. So Hecate becomes Persephone's companion and attendant, spending a lot of her time in the underworld. And it is after this story, it's after this point that Hecate becomes a deity of the underworld as well. Mm. So there's a few things to note here. This very much is a story of rebirth and transformation. Um, there's definitely but the way, a seasonal aspect to it, right? Like they're explaining the seasons through it. Yeah, 100%. But in ancient Greece, like the underworld, Hades' underworld, was not uh, the hellscape that we imagine hellscapes to be now. With, with, with Christianity, you hear the word hell and you're like, oh gosh, it's a place of punishment and torture and all of this stuff. It's not like that. The Stolen word, by the way, just so you guys know. The, even the term hell is like appropriated from another culture. Anyway. Yeah. They've made yeah. it all up. <laughs> it was very much so appropriated by another culture. Yeah. Um, but the underworld is a place where people would go to purify and heal and then prepare for rebirth. By constantly leaving and returning each year, Persephone is going through her own cycles of death and rebirth. And, The rebirth process is really important for the Greeks. Part of the rebirth process would be to drink drink water from the river Leith, which -hmm. would wipe your memory from the life that you had just lived. Mm. So here's like an interesting little side bit. Demeter, Persephone, and Hecate were honored every year in Elysees in ancient Greece. And we now refer to this as the Elysian Mysteries. They are considered to be the most famous of secret religious rites of ancient Greece. And we don't know a whole lot about them. What we do know is that this their basis was an old agrarian cult. There is some evidence that they were derived from religious practices of the Mycenaean period. Wait, Part wait, of what wait, we wait, do... Wait, wait, wait. wait sorry. I, yeah. You got to explain those to me. What's an agrarian <laughs> cult? A, agrarian then, cult is... Agrarian cult. Sorry, I knew. Yeah, an agrarian cult uh, is basically a cult that is all about working the land, the crops. Like they are all about the fertility of the crops, and it makes perfect sense because people, I mean, that was their food, right? And Mm -hmm. and Demeter is linked to fertility of the crops, so it's an old agrarian cult. And then what what was was the the other other one? The thing you said after that, the Mycenaean period. Mycenaean period. When was that? Okay, what so that? Uh, the the Mycenaean civilization was the last phase of the Bronze Age in ancient Greece. So, um, oh, okay, I like ancient that. Mycenae. Have you heard of ancient Mycenae? Mm-mm, not really. I haven't gone that okay, far back. Okay, we're gonna have to yet. do some stuff on that. But you're looking at like Bronze Age stuff is interesting. 
I don't know a yeah, lot about it's it the, yet. It's the Bronze Age. So it goes from 750 to 1050 BCE, roughly. Interesting. Okay. Sorry, yeah. B- BCE, I was having a time with it the other day because I was like, it goes, it counts backwards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it I know. Down. I know. And I, I know. always forget that. So anyways. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So part of what we do know, so this is this is like old. This is a really old religious rite, and they're honored at this time. Um, so these religious practices are part of that period. Part of what we do know is that they actually told initiates that when they do go into the underworld, they were not to drink from the river Leith and wipe their memories. Instead, they were supposed to drink from a body of water called memazine, I think, or nemazine, meaning memory, so that they would actually be reborn with knowledge of their previous lives and continue their growth and learning journey, which I thought was just really fucking cool. Yes. (laughs) I want to learn a lot more about them. (laughs) It's all in your DNA. Yeah, right? (laughs) So the biggest like Hecate also doesn't have that many temples the biggest and most famous temple to Hecate was in Lagina or Lagina I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it which was located in nearby today Turgut southwest Turkey okay and it was this huge cult center where initiation rites would be performed but there is evidence of people inhabiting the the area again since the Bronze Age Mm -hmm. so Hecate has either undergone several different forms that we don't even know or potentially someone else was worshipped in that area. Yeah, or someone else was worshipped in that area beforehand. Uh, Like, who knows? This is is a goddess that is continuously evolving. Mm -hmm. I had already mentioned she would be honored with food and sacrifices, which would be served to her on a dark moon. And the Greeks would call the dark moon what we know today as a new moon their new moon would start when they actually saw a sliver of the moon in the sky Mm. and meals would be left at crossroads, which people who couldn't afford to eat uh, would be free to take, which is kind of nice. And sacrifices would be made. And if you do this every month, your house is considered to be purified. She was also associated, like we see this shift. So she was associated, you know, as being this big, goddess ruler of underworld and and but before that she was just ruler of the sky and the earth Mm. and water and and all of a sudden she's also like this goddess of the underworld and ghosts and necromancy and poisonous plants she's big in the poison path oh Uh, i love the poison path yeah girl yeah she's really big in the poison path um, I should say, you sh- if you ever get in onto the poisonous plant path, you better make sure that you do a lot of research around the non-poisonous mm-hmm. stuff work first. Like I always found myself really drawn to the poisonous stuff. I don't, I don't actually actively use it. I just like to research it. But um, it's dangerous. It's considered dangerous for a reason. Plant medicine. So <laughs> tread with caution and learn read lots of books, and always triple check your plants. Um, That's a sidebar. (laughs) No, it's very true because we always hear about these plants. And I'm sure a lot of people don't know, like the yew tree is sacred and in so many different stories, but the yew tree is a poisonous plant. (laughs) Or look at the elder tree. The elder tree and like the cultures is considered like one of the most like sacred old trees. It's 
associated to witchcraft. And at the same time, half of like the, like, I think it's the leaves and sometimes the berries are very, very toxic, but the flowers can be used. The fruits can be used if you know how to the the right way to use them or the right procedure. So you always have to be careful with your plant medicine. And if you're drawn to the poisonous stuff, it's okay. It doesn't make you bad. It just means you really got to do some research around that. I make elderberry syrups all the time. Me too. So good. I love elderberry. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Anyways, we digress. Uh, I think it's, I think it's really, really quite something actually this I and, and I'm starting to understand kind of like this full picture of her in relation to where we're at now with Hecate um, because in the research that I did um, around Diana Diana is a very filled out goddess queen of the mm-hmm. witches and they share a lot of commonality to the point where I also think she embodies a triple goddess with Hecate and Artemis as well in some mm-hmm. in some beliefs um but it's very interesting to me because they have so many similarities they have a lot of similarities when it comes to this darkness aspect and um it makes me wonder if Hakate is kind of like calls to the people that almost feel like they live on the fringes of society in terms of when when a Wicca is creating their personal practice uh, with a deity, like maybe this is the type of people she likes to connect with and come to and work with, you know, and I think and I think just in general, which is kind of up until more recently have always kind of felt like they were on the outside and on the fringe if they weren't outrightly being persecuted. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's really, really interesting. Now, the Greeks and ancient Greeks, they saw her as more of a maiden. I think most cultures saw her as a virgin goddess, but some mm. actually say that she gave birth to a sea monster named Skylar. Yes. And Hercules later kills Skylar. So even in the ancient period, even in the ancient period, some of the Cults and temples that were in Turkey viewed her as an oracle and bestower of prophecy, but ancient Greece mm. Greeks gave that honor to Apollo and the Oracle of Delphi. So she embodies this crone aspect today. The ancients never saw her as that. And she really starts to come about in the Middle Ages with the rise of witch hunts and how women per- were perceived at the time. So like again, Ooh, she's let's talk about evolving. That want to know about the rise of witch hunts well i want to know like what her relationship is with that i think it's exactly what you said like there are these women that are on the fringes of society and being persecuted and they are seeking some sort of guidance Uh, and hecate is that she's kind of seen she never has center stage she is always called upon and Mm. you know she doesn't have any myth that revolves solely around her but she's seen helping sorceresses in ancient myths and she's seen as having connections and and helping other women a lot and and so if you are being persecuted wouldn't you naturally just gravitate towards that goddess she's a goddess of transition which is like yeah. such a such a valuable when when people are transitioning in their life the one thing i think they all wish on some level that they had is some guidance in that transition you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i love i love that image for her but it also may also be why she doesn't have a centralized story cuz she's not actually 
like taking main character role. And I know that in our society today, we talk a lot about main character energy and like what it is to embody like the main character. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that that's an interesting idea and concept to explore, but sometimes everything isn't all about us. There needs to be a balance between that and us um, being there for others. So I, it's really interesting because just talking about, you know, what she actually represents versus these ideas of what she represents, it makes it, it makes it seem like really she's a companion on, on journeys and often difficult journeys by the sounds of it, which is, which is absolutely, I mean, it's quite cool. Let's not forget the original, one of the original things that she would be worshipped for was this goddess of transition, primarily for oh, like right. childbirth oh, and motherhood. Oh, duh. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then it changes. It changes. So like being a goddess of transition herself, like she's just continuously evolving. She's changed so much. And like she's this beacon of light, but also a harbinger of darkness. And she is through and through like a very multifaceted woman and goes by so many different names. Yes, now we know her as Hecate, but in ancient Greece, she would be known as like earthly one, torchbearer, three-bodied, of the three ways, before the gate, child's nurse, key bearer, light bearer, of the ways. Like there are so many different names that she would go by. And I also wonder if maybe that's why there's less centralized stories about her. What I like about her um, as as a archetype or a character is she is everything in herself. Whereas when we explore the story of another goddess that many witches consider the goddess of witches, which which is Diana, you see in the later stories where she divides herself into darkness and light, which is very representative of the time that that story came about. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that later. But she divides herself where I like the fact that Hecate is kind of like never divided she's always both of those things in her inside herself and is sovereign in that that's very interesting mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. another thing that kind of solidifies her role as being this goddess of witchcraft specifically because she's like kind of yeah, how does that come about there, it's it's really I frustrating know it's because there isn't but... an exact <laughs> there isn't an exact answer for you. Like, I don't have an exact answer. So in the fourth century, fourth century uh, tragedy writers, Sophocles and Euripides, and this is again, BCE, um, Hecate is depicted as this goddess of witchcraft. Just a century earlier, she's seen in the works of Aeschylus uh, and her role is kind of reinforced by the fact that she's the goddess who's mentioned most frequently in what is called the Greek magical papyri. And so this, this is a, a body of work from Greco Roman Egypt, mostly written in ancient Greek, but also old Coptic and Demotic. And it has a number of magical spells and formula hymns and rituals. And the materials of the papyri date from like, the 100 BCE mark to 400 common era. And um, there's just like a series of, of texts that are magical in nature, I guess. And she's kind of mentioned there in the Greek magical papyri. But again, like she's not 
she's not given a starring role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's she's just mentioned in these like little hymns and in rituals and and again on curse tablets. So this idea of her being a witch, it really seems to be from the people, but she's never really recorded as a witch in any of the myths. So it's again one of those things where is it is it folk tradition and folk religion that kind of gave rise to this? And it's recorded a little bit later in just bits and pieces, but it seems like it may have really been a, a cult tradition or cult religion that spread without ever being given the power. It basically, a lot of things were written by men. This is giving a lot of power to a woman. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking the whole time. You and were so, saying oral that. tradition, yeah. yeah, oral tradition passes and things pass down. Um, but she's never really given that much power in writing. So it's really just little fragments and tidbits. If you want to look into the Greek magical papyri, I want to look into them a bit more because it's very fragmented. Fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really fragmented. But really, it's that and the cursed tablets that kind Mm -hmm. of give her this air of being a witch. And like, you know, in, in some myths, like I had mentioned in, I think, the first episode of the season, there's Medea who like screams out to Hecate as she's a sorceress to help her with her curse. And like, that's one of the few myths where that's mentioned, but it's just a little sidebar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say like, it seems like, um, you know, the really crafty, like the intelligent way to, to omit somebody or something or some idea from history would be just to completely get rid of, or not give any focus to this thing, to this particular person, idea, whatever. So I really mm-hmm. feel like it almost seems like it's it's an attempt. Well, first of all, from the historical perspective, just the fact that she comes probably from an outside culture can, can speak a lot depending on, and especially it's more like um, questionably more like the Asian, Asian end of Turkey, coming mm-hmm. from that outside influence that in itself you we see it a lot in history um the christians were not the first to envelop common um practices and ideas from the communities that they were trying to overthrow the romans did it the greeks probably did it too you know what i mean so mm-hmm. first of all i could see them bringing her in the into the fold simply to do that but then also to not give much credence to her in order Mm -hmm. to kind of let that concept slowly fade away. So actually, you know, I really like that she's having a moment right now. She's having a resurgence in in following. Uh, One of the things I'm going to say about both whoever you consider the queen of witches or the goddess of witches to be, the fact that these ideas, these archetypes, these women however you want to describe them, have survived this long, that's awesome. And it really, we dive into the ways that they survive and a lot of it's, you know, questionable. A lot of this study can, a lot of these studies can often be um, 
you know, like critiqued and looked at in different ways because we're constant, we don't have a lot to go on. Like a lot of these old, old sources, just there's not many of them. And I think Mm -hmm. um, when you start doing research into like folklore of different places and myths into in of different places, they're called myths for a reason because we really don't know what way is up and which way is down, you know? Um, Yeah. But, but do the best we can. Yeah, everybody's kind of doing the best they can with the information that they have and they find it as they go. But it's just, to me, it's honestly remarkable that that these ladies have survived in this way for this long and have active following patrons to this day. Like, badass. Badass. Yeah, and I heard, and I don't know how true this is, but I heard someone, uh, a researcher, so I guess it must be relatively true. I heard a researcher say that that temple, the one existing temple that they found that was dedicated to Hecate still sees over 100,000 people, like pagans, visit every year. And it's Which I thought was really Turkey, right? You said? Yeah. 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 It's in Turkey. Are you kidding me? I would go there in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. Just to say, hey, I respect you. <laughs> totally. And, but, I mean, it's just interesting because she, her, her power of influence did start out as being incredibly large and vast. And over time, her role as a protector morphed. And mm-hmm. she's just represented as this triple body goddess of magic, of witches, of haunting crossroads alongside her hellhounds and like helping restless souls. And she like that's no surprise. No, she became embodied with uh, and coincides with darkness, I guess. Mm -hmm. But she used to be so much bigger, yeah, and lighter. Well, I think that's that's the Christian influence. If I had to guess, I would say that's the Christian influence because we see it. it, We see it when we look into the story of Diana as well. Um, Maybe, but she starts to become darker even during the Greek time. It was like, really, there was a span of 100 years where things shifted. And, you know, in ancient Greece, men really started to take a a primary role. Hmm. It was like a span of 100 years where things really, like, shifted. Yeah. For for Hecate and for women (laughs) in ancient Greece a little bit more. Hmm. Um, I can't wait until we do more stuff on Greece and really dig into who these fuckers were that did that shit. (laughs) (laughs) To put it nicely. (laughs) Just as a little side note as well, I think um, it is totally possible that dogs were sacrificed to her. She was, uh, in, in one legend, Hecate is associated with a black dog that is once said to have been the Trojan queen Hecuba. So the mm. wife of the Trojan king Priam in the time of the Trojan War, so like we all know the story of Troy, she ended up going mad and leaping into the sea when she was taken as a slave. And the story mm. claims that Hecate took pity on her and turned her into a dog who became her companion. And this is what I mean. There's like little side notes, little like tiny little stories where it's just like an offshoot of, oh, and then Hecate did this. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. 
It's so, it's so, so wild the way that that happens. And also um, really interesting the way that these stories, because they've been passed down for literally thousands of years now, the way that they overlap and bleed into each other and like the idea of a, a multiple goddess situation becomes, you know, one defined goddess. Like for example, um, this is uh, like kind of unrelated, but related. Um, the story of Lilith. We often hear the story of Lilith as Lilith. Many could consider her in a lot of ways, the queen of witches, because she's considered to be the first, the first um, wife of Adam. And then she doesn't want to obey Adam. So then she's cast aside. And again, we have this concept of like the outcast and this, that, and the other thing. But when, um, when scholars start researching the story, that story is actually an Abrahamic story. It comes from like, like Judaism, Kabbalah, that kind of thing. And Lilith, when you break down the term of what it, it's meant to be, it's actually meant to represent multiple demons, not just one mm -hmm. particular soul thing. But we see this a lot where there's um, historically like far back in the in our pasts, farther than men, most of us know, um, there's multiple representations of a different thing that yeah. kind of overlap on each other. And then it gets defined into this one, one thing around the era of the Romans, because the Romans were really the ones that kind of, or sorry, the Greeks, the Greeks were really the ones that started to create like physical form to their yeah. piece. Yeah. Lilith, the, the history of Lilith, the history of that story is so interesting because it like she's a figure in in ancient Mesopotamia. Yeah. Which we'll have to go into that. I would love to go into that because her story is so interesting and how it's changed. Is really yeah, it requires a deep a, a deep dive all on its on its own. Um, yeah. But a lot of these a lot of these revived idea a lot of these revived ideas of what we know today do come out of this what we talked about in the witchcraft episode which is this neo-pagan revival that really started in the late 1800s early 1900s and had pretty success successful growth into wicca into the 1940s all the way up to the 1980s and you know still still goes on so a lot of a lot of that whole concept of neo-paganism is a revival of something that was like this pagan is pagan um, idea or deity being brought mm -hmm. back. And also I think we yeah. should double meant double down on that and mention that pagan is the term pagan is very much a concept that was I think created by Christians in order to define anything that was kind of rural and outside of their belief structure of a monotheistic God. Basically, when they started to take over and take control, anything that was polytheistic, anything that was outside of the one true God was considered pagan, right? So that's, that's yeah. a term that they would have used, not a term that people following any polytheisms would have used. No, and I think that term came around like mm, the fourth century-ish. Yeah, it's really it's really a fun little labyrinth maze you get to walk through when you start to peel back the layers of all this stuff. And then you start to realize that history is written by the victors, as we often hear. But you actually discover that by doing this kind of 
research and then peeling it back peeling it back even more to realize even the verbiage that we use the words that we use are heavily are influenced by that idea as well i know that it's not always the case that yeah i disagree with histories written by the victors like a lot of times the losers write things down but like okay so in a lot of situations um the norse invading england like they won a lot of the time and they invaded and like killed priests and everything like that but the priests had the ability to write things down and then they painted these pagans to be barbaric they may not have necessarily been as barbaric as we're led to believe Mm. by what was written down and recorded by the 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 british or like the anglo-saxons i should say but ultimately the anglo-saxons saxons become the british who are actually like a major power in the world up until a certain for sure but it was written like at the time that it was written they were not Okay, well, so you're his, spanning you're spanning history. hundreds and hundreds of years at this point, right? And it was written at a time when they weren't winning. Okay, at that so, point, they weren't the victors, but that was a society that was recording their history. Whereas the Norse and like the the Scandinavian countries who were going around and Viking, hmm. they didn't record things in the same way. Okay, so history is not written by the victors; it's written by the people who knew how to write. Pretty much. And the people who want a story, a story to be told in a certain way. I think that's more accurate. The people that had foresight that this might influence future generations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then they yeah. said, and then they said, why don't we just say we're victors? Because they won't know. See? That's <laughs> exactly how it happened. Yeah, you're right. That actually makes a lot more sense. <laughs> But it still actually feeds to my point. (laughs) When you peel all this shit back, you're like, oh, I have actually looked at this thing from one way or one side, not realizing like that there's so many different things. um, There's a lot to take into consideration. Uh, And it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah, Yeah. it's super (laughs) interesting. Your favorite word. I'm sorry. I have to like look up other words for interesting because I think I use it way too much. Fascinating. Fascinating seems super. Fascinating seems like. Intriguing. Intriguing is a good one. I like intriguing. (laughs) Fascinating seems like way too enthusiastic. Like it it is fascinating, but I want to save that one for when I really, really mean it, you know? Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) But. I don't know. There's something about the word interesting, right? Like, it's like, hmm, I want to know more. Curiouser, curiouser. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, that is it on Hecate. I know it was kind of convoluted and all over the place because she has changed was. so much. Yeah. No? I think, okay, well, no, that's no, no. good. <laughs> I think <laughs> no. she's just constantly evolving. And even today, she continues to evolve. And like you said, I love that she's had this resurgence, but she's so different from where she started to what she is today and she continues changing which is a very human characteristic to be quite honest and mm-hmm. if you have humans worshiping something it only makes sense that 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 it evolves a little bit i mean especially if it's not within the rigid like a rigid religion mm-hmm. it just makes sense that things meander and evolve and thoughts change and form um but there you go it's your little crash course on hecate <laughs> 
We hope you enjoyed this and we would love to know what you guys think. If, um, if you work with Hecate, if you knew of Hecate, um, let us know. Please engage with all of our all of our um, podcasts. We have a social media channel on Instagram called the Allegory Story Podcast. You can find us there. And yeah, just um, get in touch with us. Email. Let us know what you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you can also do that. Email, email. <laughs> <So> old school. <laughs> Well, it's like not everyone uses social media, so. Yeah, you're right. I guess that's true. <laughs> okay. So at email. Allegory Story Podcast on Instagram or Allegory Story, Allegory Story Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, give this a like, subscribe, all the fun things. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> Where we will see you is in the next thing. What am I even saying? We'll see you next time. Bye.